Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. And we've got Jack Burke joining us today. Can't wait to unpack his story. And he's got all kinds of interesting tales that go all the way back up to Boston, Massachusetts. So we'll hear all about Jack. But before we dive into all of those stories and your background, Jack, we always like to start with a heartbeat question. So the scenario is this, you are out walking from your car in the parking lot to Old Providence Racquet Club. You're ready for another tournament. Somebody sees you. They say, hey, that's Jack Burke. And they start talking about you, but you don't, they don't realize that you can hear everything that they're saying about you. So what is it that you would like somebody to say about you? That's a great question. Uh, I'd like them to say that, you know, that's a guy that um, cares about the community, cares about um, the friends and the relationships and the partners that he's developed uh, throughout the years. Um, a guy that hopefully, you know, that they feel um, comfortable to be open and be honest with myself. And, you know, if they have a question or be approachable, you know. So. Love it. So before we dive into your story, Jack, I, I want to give the listeners a little bit of a background when there are so many different directions that we can go with this. So I won't spend an hour listing <laughs> listing everything. Yeah. Um, but Jack's the, the CEO and Chief Visionary Officer at BRK Global Marketing, uh, which you've been running for almost 32 years at this point. And okay. then Jack's the founder and president of a Big Heart Foundation as well as more recently, the partner and chief marketing officer at Norlandis, a private travel concierge company. So few few uh, balls in the air, but Jack, I wanna go back to what we were talking about before this podcast started, and that's your, your college experience. So you were a, a college athlete, you played division one tennis. What were some of the lessons you learned as a, a high level college athlete that you've been able to apply to running businesses? Oh, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, from day one, when you're playing any kind of varsity sport, whether it's Division One, Division Two, or junior college, um, you're making a commitment to the team and the school. And immediately as a freshman coming in, I forget, coming off the airplane from Boston, Massachusetts, like training the first day, but you have to have a tight schedule. I had classes from seven to nine. I was doing um, architecture, but I had to transfer that because the studio was during our practice session, which was typically about one to five. And it's every day, no matter rain, rain, sleet, snow, tornado, you had tennis. And if you had to go inside, you were doing it in the, in the swimming pool or you're doing it in the gym, but there was no cancellation of our practice. And then every weekend, you know, we had to um, literally travel all up the East Coast to play other colleges. So that went, you know, we had 42 matches, I think, in the spring. Uh, we had like half of that in the fall. But um, that was an eye opener. Is um, And especially, you know, you get a scholarship and you're playing for the school, they're paying for you, you're literally you know, pay to play. Um, and that's your commitment. You know, they pay for your school and you're going to pay for the play for the school in town. So it was, it was interesting, but yeah, having that schedule and I had studio and I went into the visual communications uh, and design degree because I couldn't do architecture. And then that was studio from like seven to nine at night. And then that repeated throughout the week. So, you know, studio classes, typically you got to do six hours for three hour credits. So I had a kind of a double whammy that had extra classes versus a typical uh, you know, kind of student athlete, but um, it really, really, you know, and then you had homework, 
which, you know, I don't know. I didn't sleep, I think, about three hours every night. I don't know how I did that, but. Um, <laughs> you were you were 18 to 21 years old, right? It's a little easier to go off in no sleep back then. <laughs> and we still went out partying Friday, Saturday night. I was a member of Sigma Phi Epsilon. But yeah, it's, it really just taught you how to really stay focused and stay committed. And, you, you know, I was really, I had a tight schedule, but it really, really made me disciplined um, on my time management. And I think that right there was a huge learning experience that you can't really teach anyone. I just was automatically had to do it. If I didn't do it, I wasn't playing tennis and I wasn't going to be, you know, at that school. So uh, it really, you know, the focus was probably my number one, um, you know, take back uh, from, from being in school. I still use it today, you know? So. so how do you handle that internally now? Right? Like you said, it's not necessarily something that you can just tell somebody and they can, they can start to learn it. You had to go through that experience as a college athlete how do you bring that into your business and, and help other people with time management and focus on priorities and responsibilities? How do you bring that to the business today for them? I just micromanage everyone else. It makes it really <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of pushback because, you know, especially today, uh, there's a different work ethic with the, the work-life balance. I mean, I've been doing it for 32 years. And, you know, we got a lot of younger group. And a lot, you know, they're out by five, they're in by nine. And, you know, they do work a little bit off hours because you get texting and e emails and things like that. So it's a whole different work ethic. But yeah, I, have, I actually had two of them tell me last week. One was like, I think I'm being micromanaged. It's like, well, you kind of are a little bit. <laughs> so they actually do get some feedback. But I think, but you gotta, you have to set an example. So they do know that my schedule is pretty, you know, pretty tight. And I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that, I'm, you know, I, I don't waste time. But they do see that. So I do feel like they kind of learn a little bit by example from what I'm doing, my schedule that I say, hey, I've got 30 minutes here and they'll, they'll adjust their schedule to accommodate what needs to happen. But I'm constantly coaching them. You know, I was in a 35 minute meeting before this, we had, you know, two meetings, three, I had four people. I said, we got to kind of, you know, let's do the time management for the timelines, for the projects. Um, as you know, today, everyone wants it done, you know, quicker and faster and sometimes cheaper. <laughs> So, it, it, you know, they do come back a lot and ask, you know, how do I handle this and that? So I'm usually coming in as a problem solver and I'll sit down. I'll, I'm, the great thing was like, you know, like Friday, they're like, oh, we got an emergency because we have a deadline and all that stuff. It's not really, you know, it's, it's not as an emergency as you think when you sit down and you go through it. Um, and they were all freaked out. I'm like, no. And they sat down and said, okay, it's very easy to literally come up with a solution once you kind of look at all the, the end game. It's like, you know, it's like being on a tennis court, you know, you want to win the match. And how you're going to adjust, you know, when you play a set, you might lose the first one. How do you win the second? And how do you walk off the court as a winner? So I think I always put those scenarios in place, even though it's instinctively just happens. Um, I don't like purposely think, oh, this is going to be, this is the way I would do it. I just automatically kind of help them with solutions. I think they've been very appreciative of that because, you know, I've got the experience and a lot of that you can't get in a lot of people today. You know, like I've got, you know, we got some young people out of school two years and they want to always be a you know, a president or a VP, but they don't understand that it takes all that time just from experience mm -hmm. to build the wisdom. Not that I'm smarter. I mean, I can tell you right now, I guarantee half the people I have or more, um, like they say, hire people that are smarter than you. They're better IQ, super smart, very much more smarter than I am. But I've realized that by bringing them under my wing, I can still train them with my experience, which, you know, I got more street smarts. I would say definitely not as much technical smarts, but together it makes a good team, you know? So I've kind of, I've kind of learned a little about that. And if they respect that too, if they respect where I am at in my career and what I've done, then it's usually a win-win with my employees and even with our clients, because you have that, you know, you can't come in there and say, I have this huge ego that, oh, 
we're the best at what we do, you know, take it or leave it. And there's a lot of, you know, creative agencies in our field that say, you want to pick, pick us, we're the best. It, it's this or nothing. And, but there's not no collaboration and there's no kind of partnership there. That's weird. I see that a lot. Um, like we just picked up a client or like we had no collaboration. We had no input. It was like, take it or leave it. And I hear that a lot. So yeah, um, it's, yeah. It's, and then, you know, and then it's, um, lack of communication with sometimes my younger group, you know, I'll get a text saying, Hey, but you know, it's a different, it's a different, um, workforce out there. So it's, um, it's been eye-opening. I never thought we'd be at this workforce right now with the, the work-life balance, which is neat. I, I've actually adjusted. I was a guy that everyone had to come in the office because I was in there, you know, 738 workaholic, you know, staying here close to be the last guy to close up. So, um, I think the work-life balance is a little better because like, you know, even this morning I was able to, you know, get into work around 9.30 and not have to figure out I got to bust my ass to get in the office to make sure everyone sees me here. Because right now I'd say 70% of my workforce is working from home. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's a trust factor on that too. So you have to kind of, I have to loosen the reins with my employees and, and a lot of that, give them trust. And I think as that happens too, um, that's a different kind of relationship you have with the employer and employee. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm curious, Jack, you know, um, I think before we turned on the recording, you had talked about launching a, you were selling, you had a t-shirt company in college <laughs> yep. to, to pay for things. Was that your first entrepreneurial endeavor or was there something before that even? Oh, I did a lot before that. We were shoveling driveways, my brother and I, typical stuff, you know, doing the lawns. We did a lot of lawn. You know, my dad actually had a couple of pieces of property in Boston. So we were the lawn maintenance people. And then um, I actually started stringing tennis rackets in high school. And I was actually bought a stringing machine. So I was stringing rackets on the side for like five, 10 bucks each. And then uh, Herman Sporting Goods, after my up in Boston, I became their actually uh, their kind of their New England stringer for like Peabody, Framingham, Braintree. So I was like the stringer and I was able to do them like in 10 minutes. I was getting five bucks a racket and I was getting, <laughs> I actually did uh, Boris Becker's rackets, the Pumas, right before he was playing the open. He heard about me. He says, who's this guy that can string these rackets? I strung six of them like in an hour and a half. Wow. I got to meet him. I was 16 when I did it because he was 16 when he won Wimbledon. I never forgot that. I was like, I was like, okay, well, he's he's winning Wimbledon. I'm stringing his racket. I said, oh, I got to change it. <laughs> but yeah, I strung, I still string my racket today, actually. It's kind of funny. I just rebuilt the Ectolon stringer because I didn't want to pay 50 bucks for uh, a racket. And I just bought one and rebuilt the whole crankshaft and everything. And I string, you know, of course, now I got my friends saying, hey, can you string my racket? I'm like, no. Yeah, you pay me 100 bucks. <laughs> yeah. I've graduated. <laughs> yeah, I'm stringing your racket. But, so. We're... we're other entrepreneurs in your family, just, you know, was your dad or mom? I'm just curious because starting out that young is not typical. <laughs> yeah, my dad was uh, always self-employed. So he was a designer himself, a furniture and a lamp designer, started interior design. So he was always actually, it's funny, he actually worked at home, uh, converted one of our bedrooms into his drafting table. So I actually worked with him on the side and actually learned Initially, that's why I wanted to get into architecture, learn how to draft. And I was doing the mechanicals for, you know, the furniture. And he was always coming to High Point for the shows. So it's funny, where my brain is that I applied only for North Carolina schools because every time in the spring and the fall, you know, they had the international furniture market. And it was one of the biggest in the, I was like, where's dad? He's at the market. So 
I think it was weird. And the weather, of course, is a lot nicer down here. You know, you grew up playing tennis 10, you know, almost 10 months out of the year indoors. That's not really that exciting. So to be down here and play, you know, literally almost 12 months out of the year is, it was pretty neat. So, um, and he finally, my dad is actually still here and he's at the coast of, um, North Carolina at St. James. And, uh, he's still actually fixing little lamps and designing things. You know, he even designed the trophies for our toys for tots golf tournament this year, our 15th annual. He designed them and hand carved and handmade our first, second and third place trophies. So that's kind of how cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I got kind of learned from him and then I kind of knew he probably did the first, you know, work from home kind of thing, which is kind of, um, you learn from that. He had a lamp store and he had a couple other, um, but he was behind the scenes and doing a lot of his creative. He did teach me that I needed to be not behind the scenes, but be more in front of the scenes because he was designing furniture for Ethan Allen and, and Tiffany and um, a lot of these famous companies, but they didn't know who it was, you know? So I learned how to put my mark on everything. He said, Jack, whatever you do or design or create, make sure you get credit for it. So I really, I really kind of learned from that. When I was doing magazine covers the first couple of years, I would do them pro bono as long as they gave me a credit on the front. I did like Auto Age, Post Mag. So I did like almost a dozen magazines. I just wanted to get credit and I used that for my portfolio and it actually worked yeah. out because like, oh, who's this kid, Jack Burke? And I said, well, he did the custom uh, illustration or the graphic design for the cover. So I kind of, that's how I got started. Even when I started in 91, I was trying, how do I get my name out there being a nobody? I'm still not super somebody, but you know, it just helps you get business when you say, Hey, I designed yeah. these golf covers and some were big national publications, um, but that's how I learned from him. And he, he always told me, yeah, if I wanted a couple bucks, I had to make it on my own. So they were, you know, they, they got me through school and, you know, between me having a, you know, tennis scholarship and no debt in college. Like when I want to join the fraternity, he says, you're going to join the fraternity, you better make some money. So that's when I designed uh, almost 60 t-shirts uh, all in college. Uh, I think I told you, I got, I had, I did the co-ed naked lacrosse, you know, rough, tough, and in the buff. I sold thousands. Of <laughs> <laughs> I did. I sold, you see them everywhere. I just found another one. Someone was wearing, I was like, damn, but we did Greek week. I did all the sports t-shirts. Uh, my mom actually uh, made a quilt. And she passed in November, but she gave it to me a year before. She actually made a quilt and um, of all the shirts I made was kind of neat. It took her like 15 years to make it, but it was kind of neat to get that. How yeah. cool. Yeah. So Jack, you, you grew up around entrepreneurship. You had all these different endeavors that you did, right? In high school and then in college. Was, was your vision always to go create your own or... Or how did that come about in your life of saying, okay, there were these endeavors, but I want to make this a career of running my own business? Yeah, I think I did work for a couple of agencies right out of school. Um, I actually produced my portfolio was on a VHS, which was kind of unusual at that time. Usually when you're a visual communications major, I usually have a, a show, you know, and people would come to the show and you would actually have a gallery. I actually videotaped all my artwork, all my creative um, three-dimensional sculptures, everything, and produced a video and submitted the VHS to all the agencies around the, pretty much up the East Coast. That's how I, you know, I got a couple of job offerings. Um, but I always knew I wanted to do my own thing. But then we worked for two other ad agencies, another video production company, they all went bankrupt. And I was only 18, less than 18 months out of school. And uh, the president, Joe Morgan, came to me and said, hey, you know, you should look at, try to do your own thing. I said, I knew I was going to do my own thing. I just thought I was a little green at the beginning because I was 23 years old. And I said, Great, but he helped me do a business plan that week. Uh, it was called Burke Computer Designs. 
And we went to the bank, asked for 30,000, went to like seven. Of course, all of them said no. But then you already have that, you're that got brain power, like, okay, I'm already focused on it. And I started it on a credit card. I had a Sears credit card that had a $3,000 limit. And I actually got my phone. He said, the only thing you need to do is get a phone and make sure you rent a space. So I rented, um, Barbara Bissell was my real estate agent and didn't realize the Bissells were, you know, pretty important family here in the, in the Carolinas. And she helped me find my first place on 8th Street. And um, the photographer, I think it was Chapel. I don't, so he, I rented from him and he was actually doing big stuff for Belk. And I actually rented this little 400 square foot uh, space. He said, you gotta make sure you get up and you go to work. You do not work out of your house when you first start. He said, you, you know, you have a cattle run over your, your, your keyboard or whatever, especially now you got the video conferencing we didn't have then. So he did, I actually bought this, rented it and I went to work every day. I had a fax machine. I remember I had a computer because you didn't even have emails then. Um, it was kind of funny. I, I, had a, I had a couch and I remember seeing the phone and the fax and just sitting there going, okay, I'm gonna do this and being alone. And it was like um, kind of an eye opener. Um, and then of course I had a search firm trying to find me a job. And I guess IBM calls me it says after like, you know, the eighth month of, of looking, they found me a really, really nice job. Well, I don't know if you remember, there's a, a multimedia with the, with the B, you know, the IBM, and it was in Atlanta. And I got offered um, here, I'm making, you know, 15,000 on my first job and get out to start my thing. They offered me 75 for a six month contract. And I said, I just opened the doors and the guy's like, well, you can do your thing on the weekends and come here and all that. And I refused. I remember my dad saying, Are you, what's going on? Are you sure? <laughs> But then we made like 19,000 my first year, you know, off pizza and, and running the company. But, you know, you get it in your mind that you want to set your, you know, you want to give it a shot. And I had, you know, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I just literally bought a Chevy Cavalier. I had, I had a small, you know, um, car loan and I had, you know, three other roommates. So I was living pretty inexpensively. I mean, my most expensive, um, you know, thing I had at that point the, was, the, was the rental space. You know, yeah. So it was neat, and I think you just get your brain, and then you know, you get nothing to lose. Then I have a different mindset. So you know, it's harder, as you know, when people want to be entrepreneurs, they get older. I've got a lot of friends in their forties, fifties trying to start their own thing, but you get so much responsibility, um, they don't take the risk. You know. Yeah. I mean, I got two of them. They're like, I really want to get out of what I'm doing. I'm like, you can if you want to go for it, but. Um, they just don't have that. Well, I got the mortgage, I got kids. I, got, I was like, I know, but then you got to juggle that. I said, if you really focus 100% of your brain power and your passion to do it, it will work. But I can, I mean, I'm helping a lot of startups. And I tell you, they come in. If I say, I haven't sat down with like three of them literally in the last four months. I'm not working with any of them. I said, if you do this 100%, I will support you. So we want you to be the marketing. I said, I will be the marketing agency if this is not a side gig. And you, if I know they're 100% vested and they don't think they can put food on the table next month or pay that rent because they're doing this, they will do it. Every, I can tell you 95% of them that do it as a side gig, I've actually supported them, usually fail if they close up or they're yeah. Yeah. kind of weird, but they don't, they don't put all their eggs in there. They're like, this is not risky. It's like the chicken versus the pig. The, the, the pig is committed. <laughs> the chicken lays eggs, right? But the pig is committed, man. It's like bacon. <laughs> but so I'm curious, you know, it's interesting. Your story on that front end is very, very telling. And it hits to intention and resolve. Okay. Eight months into starting your own thing. <laughs> You're looking at the fax machine sitting on the couch in your 400 square foot office going, oh boy. And you got 
you have an offer that's offering you basically five times. (laughs) And I think you said it in six months. So I don't know if 75K was the full year. It was a renewable. No, it was six months with a, like a pretty much a 95% renewable for another six months, you know? It was oh a, my gosh. Yeah. So 150 K. So you're, you're looking at 10 mm-hmm. times what you made the first year. And yet you still said, nah, I can't, I can't. Pa-. No, I think that the fact that your resolve was tested like that, because a lot of times conviction gets tested and well, it, it always does. And then we know whether we've got preference or we've got conviction. Conviction says All right. it hurts, but I'm I'm sticking in it. Preference moves with the wind. So I just think that's that's a really interesting story, which says to me, your resolve was there. You were just, you know, you were determined to do it. You said Joe Morgan was was um kind of pivotal or pivotal um was what what agency was joe with at that time well he was with south yeah it was called southland video and they brought him in he wasn't the owner so they brought him in as the president and he had a a video company out of chattanooga tennessee so you know here i got i'm a yankee literally coming from boston just graduated um worked for like two other smaller agencies didn't work out i remember sitting in his office and i was like if i don't you know, work for him initially, I was leaving. He gave me a job for a little bit. And I appreciated the honesty that he came as the president. I mean, and saying, hey, you know, things aren't looking great. And the only reason I think I got a paycheck, people were getting bounced paycheck because I was the lowest one. At that point, I think I was making right. dollars with him. So my paycheck always went through. And I was only one generating, you know, he got me out there selling. He said, you know, go sell, you know, some 3D openers and video. So I sold it to the, um, on pit road at TNN. I, I sold a little opening for like 10,000 bucks. That was a lot of money. Um, yeah. 1990. So he actually taught me how to go out and solicit business kind of at an early age. I mean, I was only 23, 22. So he kind of, but you know, he showed me business and, you know, I, I respected him and he showed me even how to shoot, but he helped me put the, the, the business plan together. Um, even though it didn't get it, we didn't get it for the bank. Cause I had no, I had no collateral and I had nothing. Um, right. But it was a really an eye opener. But he's the one that said, get the phone, get I got the credit card. Don't ask me how I applied for it. And I put it all in the credit. And I, I look back, I don't know how and I was able to get a loan on a computer. But it is weird. If you get determined to do something, you don't get caught up in the weeds, you just keep moving. I just kept going, going, going. I, was, I felt like I was practicing instead of doing that five hour tennis practice. I was only like 15 hours practicing. <laughs> And then I would come, you know, late at night and I was working until, you know, three or four in the morning doing the work because I was literally pounding the pavement, meeting people. And I learned how to try to build some relationships, but I was knocking on doors trying to get business. And I would do it 100% on my own. And actually, our first year after that, I hired two people. Um, their first employees were um, Rob Birchfield and Natalie Wrights. And they were literally a year behind me from school and graduated. And I brought them in. I was paying them more than I was paying me. I didn't, I didn't pay a salary. So if I couldn't pay the salaries, you know, I took a dividend. Yeah. I barely just scraped, but I've had to pay them salaries. Then you learn how to manage people. And I said, okay, now I can duplicate my kind of like one Jack into three. So I could do three times the, you know, the creative work, but then you're managing and then you get to realize, you know, do you want to manage a company or do you want to stay creative? So when I, I actually had the what is it, epiphany or whatever, it was like 15 years ago, I was like, do I want to be a, a chief creative officer or do I need to be a CEO? Um, yeah. So it was hard, but I made a decision. I want to be a CEO. 
and try to see if I could kind of build the business that way. Cause I do love the relationships. I love actually pitching the business and I really do like building the relationships. Now I miss a little bit of the creative, but I'm still able to keep and dabble because they'll ask me, Hey, what do you think of this? I'm able to put, you know, my three, four cents worth into, um, and they do, they ask me for ideas and suggestions and I'm still able to be part of the, the creative brainstorming initially, but then the final production and literally, you know, really go digging into the weeds. I, you know, I've got a team now. So that, yeah. And I need seeing the end result on that, you know, and then I love delivering that final result to our clients. Um, so I'll try to, like you said, build the, you know, make the recipe and they'll, they'll make the cake and then I can, I can cut the cake and then give it to them. <laughs> so, but yeah, I think, you know, so it's been, it's been different, but, um, but my dad did say that, Hey, with the independence of running your own show, you know, I always had that in, ingrained in my brain is that, you know, you do have a little more control of your life if you work for yourself. Now, of course, we all get caught up, as you know, like we've got 27 employees now. I'm caught up now the responsibility that now the company kind of runs me a little more than I would like because of the responsibility has literally grown so much that, yeah, my first responsibility now is, is to literally my employees and then to my customers. And then, you know, you're kind of running, you're on the train now, you know? So um, that's been an eye opener too. So I'm trying to figure out how I can... Um, step away enough that the company can still be profitable and be, you know, empower my people to make better decisions. That's what we did the name change. So that's why on our 30th anniversary last year, it was, you know, and it went from Burke Computer Designs to Burke Design Group to Burke Communications, just to Burke, and it was Burke Integrated Marketing. Then we just changed it to BRK, Global Marketing. It made sense. It took about two and a half years, but I'm really proud that we kind of made that transition because I, I don't mind having my mind, you know, it's weird. I can't believe it's been 30 years. I had my name on the door, but they would sometimes use that. It could go against me or for me, or they'd say, Hey, I want to work with Jack because his name's on the door. And then they don't feel like your team's as capable. So I did it as right. a culture shift, actually. And everyone here has loved it. And I've probably been able to bring four really, really strong leaders because of that. And they feel like they're not working for me, but working more for the organization and a company. So um, I'm glad I did that because it has been able to relieve me a little. Like I, I was able to play golf yesterday and, you know, the, the, you know, the company didn't, you know, close down or everything put at a halt yeah. because we had to listen to Jack had a question, you know, I was like, Oops. <laughs> so I, I think um, that was good. I'm still, we're still kind of getting through the, the bumps on that. I mean, that's a learning process. Um, still my mind, you know, mindset 30 years running it this way and that way to try to convert everything over the, you know, about 60, 70% there. But I am empowering, like, you know, I've got a you know chief marketing officer, a new COO, and they've been now with me three or four years. They're empowered now to make decisions, you know. Yeah. Yes. And, and, uh, the keystone in the company. Yeah, right. And be actionable. I said, guys, better to make, make a decision, do something. And, you know, nine times out of 10, it's going to be for more for the benefit than not reacting or not, not taking any kind of action can be, can be really, I mean, I mean, it can hurt us, you know. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that's interesting, especially because of what this business does, is running a marketing company and a design business over thirty two year period. Your industry has obviously dramatically evolved. Oh yeah, you can't do the same things you did thirty two years ago and get away with it. Um, like you said, there wasn't even email back then. So how talk about the what you've been able to do to keep evolving as the industry is evolving and stay ahead of the curve, whether it's culture or personal development or whatever it is, how have you been able to stay ahead of that curve and stay relevant? 
That's a great question. I know that we've had, a, you think about it, some of these companies, you know, the big behemoths look at Sears and these companies, if you don't evolve and you don't pivot and change, you're going to die. I mean, they've proven that. So I was always scared that, you know, being a marketing company and branding, of course, you know, we would rename ourselves, change the name. So it was about every four or five years, we would have to re kind of retransformation the whole company. I did a new business plan. Um, you know, we, luckily we started offering a little bit of the digital side right before COVID. I mean, that was a lifesaver because if we didn't have that, you know, um, video totally dried up because of COVID, but um, we actually put in, you know, COVID kind of protocols and video in June of 2020. And we got our first job with Chewy. The only reason we got that was because we had the protocols and we were the first company to do it. We got our first job in June, but we were always kind of constantly thinking of how can you transform the company, even all your offerings. Um, you know, I did a life change you know, 14 years ago. I went through a divorce and it made me think of my core values as a company. And I actually redid everything from my why to the what. Uh, my mission was discover significance, not only in me, but my employees and my, my, my partners and clients um, to be a resource and be a supportive of, of you know, what, what was their story and how can I help them tell their story? Um, so that, that was kind of nice. I mean, I, I redid everything. My office here thought it was crazy, but um, you know, we had our vision, you know, and our mission create with passion. And then we wanted to try to tie it in with some of the things we were doing um, creatively. So um, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And talk a little bit more about the culture inside BRA or BRK because and you've alluded to it a few times, but one of the things that stands out on the website is you're saying, yes, we're a workplace, but we're also this haven, right? And you talk about being the haven for creative collaborators and, and things like that. So talk about the culture internally. How do you balance being being both of those at the same time for these people? Um, we, we've really tried to make sure that, you know, we have people are heard, you know, I mean, now with the technology, you know, we've got everything like an Asana, they're doing things in Slack. I mean, we've got like fourth Slack channels and uh, we give out, you know, they've actually given shout outs. Like we have, you know, we're trying to do uh, anything that's a success or a win that day. They do daily shout outs on Slack. I'm not part of the Slack. I thought that would be kind of good internally. So they don't feel like I'm being, you know, big brother kind of right. seeing it. So I've actually separated myself from that, but I've heard that that's been very positive with the whole team. And like if I forward an email that was, you know, positive and I sent it to, um, the senior account person or to Marianne, my COO, they'll share it on Slack. And then it's good. It gives some positive reinforcement. We're trying to end the day with on a positive note and start the day on a positive note. And actually everyone's been chiming in. So I said, you know, tell us of one win you had. And then we actually do even a, a weekly um, employee of the week, you know, and then they'll vote on it. And it's been helpful. We give them a $20, you know, Starbucks card, but we're trying to do it. And especially we've got people now remote in, in Birmingham, Alabama, Florida, Boston, um, we're kind of being, you know, with full-time people in those, those kind of remote locations. Um, we just flew in our guy from Boston today. Um, so it's been interesting to see how they've all kind of come together as a team, you know, and like you said, make sure that we, you know, we deliver, um, you know, our projects as, as much on time and, and deliver, we'd like to over deliver too. You know, you want to make sure that, you know, everyone's a little more excited or get something better than they expected. And, you know, similarly, even what, what you guys do, Gary, um, we've kind of adapted internally, like anything, as you said, no client and no, no one wants a surprise, whether it's personal or professional. And, you know, we try to be very transparent and be very honest, um, you know, and then, you know, when I'm truly trying to tell our 
our people is like, hey, this didn't happen or whatever. It's like, you know, be transparent. If, if something happened and we did make a mistake, we're all human, you know, just own up to it. And I said, you know, it's better, guys, if you just own up to it and you didn't do it on purpose and, you know, and you're sincere and you do care. Um, that's when you know that you've got a good relationship and a, and a loyal partnership with a client. Um, I remember I had one, I had the client maybe 10 years and, you know, we did their website and their website got hacked. I remember the CEO calling me and I thought, okay, we're done. This is, you know, and, you know, but he understood. I said, you know, this got hacked. We'll do whatever it takes. It took about three weeks. They had their website up. I am still a client with them and very good friends with them. But I said, you know what? That's a difference between having a loyal client and just having a client, you yeah. know, and, and tell you to this day, I will, I will do anything it takes to go above and beyond for him for what he did that, that time. He didn't have to do that. He could have been a typical CEO and with the business said, you know, you guys uh, suck and it's your fault. And, you know, some of it was our fault, but not all of it. Um, you know, these were when, you know, websites were doing templates and there was, there was a, there was actually a worm and there was actually um, bad code on these templates. You know, we were trying to go quicker and it got hacked because it had this code on it. You know, it was one of my designers and it was a learning, that was a learning curve, you know? So we said, we're never going to use these, these templates. And I said, why would you do it? Well, it's going to make it quicker and faster, but you know, we owned up and said, Hey, we'll never do that again. Um, and we got to make sure we check it out. So you know, now templates are, are pretty much 90% accepted, you know, but this was, you yeah. know, 10 years ago, they just came in and, and they were given these templates to make it easier, but there were, you know, there was definitely a lot of hacking and a lot of code things in there. So it's funny, even my guy's been with me 10 years. He did, he was on that site and I said, we're using a template. Goes, no, we're not. I said, dude, this is a new day. Same thing. We got to pivot. We're using it. <laughs> we'll scrub it and make sure it's not, you know, it's not got any kind of uh, bad code, but it's funny how you get brain from that. He's like, I remember that day. I'm like, yeah, I'd never forget it. <laughs> but that's the same thing. He's trying to get them the mindset to to change too, you know. But. Yeah, that industry that you're in, which is what I started in. It's funny because I didn't know that you started in architecture and so did I. <laughs> it's funny. Um, but it has changed so stinking dramatically. And there are a lot of kind of make believers out there that really started coming into the forefront during the dot-com yep. phase. You know, anybody that could say gooey eyeballs was all of a sudden an expert, you know, until, you know, it crashed, but March 1st and some of those big companies just yep. went cratering down. Um, you've seen a lot and you've also been able to navigate and pivot. You, you've been you said that you had one of the names was Burke Integrated Marketing, kind of been through that stuff as well. Talk to us about how, what, what you think is your forte. Like, why would somebody call you versus the myriad of other folks out there? That's a really good question. Also, I, we've actually refined our process. The last five years, we really, really wanted to I did see, you know, usually if you lose a project or you lose a client, it's, you know, missing a deadline or, you know, not really listening to what the client's needs are. So I did take a step back and I said, guys, we really want to refine our process. We're doing a really, really good, you know, creative brief and a brand brief. And it happened to me even 10 years ago, we had a client and we did this project and the CEO was a marketing guy, um, actually it was, you know, Anthony and Sylvan Pools. And I remember Mark going says, you know, are you on brand? And this is on brand. I'm like, it is. And um, he said we were the only one that was on brand when they were doing an agency review and there was like three or four other agencies mm. taught me a lesson. He says, you know, this brand brief is kind of the Bible and the foundation. And because we followed it, we won the account. 
So every client after that, we did a brand brief and we made sure the client, you know, chose, you know, what are we doing? Why the persona? What's the brand voice? You know, what's the deliverables? What's our objectives? And it really just refines everyone. So when we're doing a project, you know, we can reference it, you know, it's not like, okay, Jack, we wanted to go do a logo and you're just shooting in the dark. And I did a lot of that in my early days, you know, and you did an awesome logo, but there was no, there was no mm-hmm. meat and reasoning and research behind why this logo was done that way. And now we do a lot more research. Um, we really take our time and, and like I said, try to go through the, the process of making sure we go above and beyond and deliver a, uh, you know, a better product than they, they would anticipate. But then it is, it's not a one-off. We, we really try not to have, I mean, we've got some companies I've worked with over them through the years. I got a bunch over 20 that even as project bases, I want to make sure that, you know, we do build that, you know, trust and confidence and um, we want to do a good job. And I, and I love the challenge. I think that's the other thing, but the competitive side of, of us as an agency, me being competitive, we always like to take a challenge on any project. And that's kind of made us expand in our deliverables. Like, you know, we just did a VR project um, for a BioStream for a trade show in Nashville two weeks ago. And I had literally 45 days and we did all in gaming software. And I've been wanting to do this for a while. So you can go around it, it's online. You can go and you can open the doors. You can technically, it's this huge container with all this technology. We got the CAD files from the engineers, and I was able to make a virtual uh, 3D immersive experience. It's in real time. And very cool. We, yeah, we just made it right to the last, you know, the day before the show. It was a little tight. I remember our team was a little concerned, but I pushed it. I, I, I led that one all the way to the last day, and I'm really proud of our finished product because that's another thing is us moving into that virtual reality gaming kind of experience. We're kind of moving into a lot of those products, especially in industrial manufacturing. I mean, this container they're going to bring into Nashville would have cost them, they said over a million dollars to ship it and get it set up. I was able to do this whole immersive experience for, you know, a hundred thousand bucks, you know? Wow. So that's a pretty good, that's a good ROI and savings. And they had a smaller booth and they, they did it all in real time and their salespeople around the world. You get a password. It's on like biostreamvr.com. They can anywhere actually log in and show their customer in real time, this, this, um, this product. So that's very cool. Yeah. So, you know, I, I try to make sure we stay on, on the cutting edge on things like that. So you got to try to figure out, you know, everyone, of course, that's not the, you know, what's the next big thing, but it goes back to the traditional designers. I mean, my, I've got five designers and, you know, I go back to that. They can draw and they've got good color balance and they understand space. And I, I would rather have them a, a full art degree or a fine art. I got, you know, I think two have fine art degrees. We can show them the technicals. Everyone can do illustrator in design and all that. But if you don't have the, the mindset of being creative and an artist, um, I've made sure that we, we make sure that that carries on, you know, mm-hmm. and you can kind of tell. So you look at their portfolio. Yeah. So the theme throughout this conversation has been how deliberate you are about decision-making, right? You're talking about, hey, this is how we've evolved and this is how we've been able to stay ahead. And this is what we see coming. This is why we're making these decisions. So I want to I want to talk about what your thought process was around creating a big heart foundation. But before we dive into that more, um, just share with everybody of what a big heart foundation is, and then we can we can keep going from there. Yeah, so a Big Heart Foundation is a foundation we actually started almost by accident. Um, but, you know, Charlotte's very philanthropic. And I was on the Charlotte, uh, the Carolina Raptor Center for like 10 years, actually did their logo website. So I was on a lot of these boards. And 
we were at a point in the mid to late nineties. I was only six, seven years into the business. And of course they always wanted a marketing person on the board, but I was on, um, you know, we had cystic fibrosis. Um, we did the Bojangles. I was doing MS. We were doing all these nonprofits, a uh, little for the Y, the YWCA. So I saw that we were doing a lot of that and I was giving a lot of my time and I thought because I had a company, we would be able to do all this stuff for free, but I realized, oh, I'm paying them payroll. <laughs> so um, it was an eye opener. We, we one year almost donated, it was more than a third of what our billings was uh, just for nonprofits. And that doesn't really cover payroll. So I was trying to get my mind around it that I had all these designers working, we can offer all these free services. So we've kind of had to dial that back in, but um, I saw that and I was like, why can't we be a little more in control of maybe doing a nonprofit that, you know, we can kind of have a little more say of where the money goes and what we're going to do for the community. So we were looking around and the Marines Toys for Tots Foundation really didn't have an event. As you guys know, they would have the toy boxes all around town. They put them in the company and you throw the toys and the Marines would literally go around and pick up all the boxes. It's very time consuming. And, and I said, what if we came up and did a golf tournament for you? Of course, there were a lot of golf tournaments. Uh, I did want to do a tennis tournament, Gary, but I was like, that's a hard one to kind of make money at. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I've done a couple like for cystic fibrosis I did for 10 years as a pro-am. And you go to a dinner the night before, say it was, at, I think one of them was at, you know, Charlotte Country Club and they would bid on the team. You play doubles. So you play with a pro and someone would pay, you know, thousands, two thousand to play with you. Um, we did that. Actually, I did it with Jeff Adams, the, actually the night that he passed. He was one of the pros and I was playing as one of the pros. That was an eye opener. That was in the early 90s. And um, you just kind of see, you know, people are willing to give back. But even with the companies I was dealing with, I, was, I have about 60 right now. And there's probably about 40 that don't do anything. I was very, very shocked, too, that a lot of these companies were not giving back. Um, some of these are really substantial companies, too, big companies. Um, they would do some small stuff, but they never gave anything that significant. So I said, let's go into that. I said, let's do a golf tournament. And this is 2007. And I actually had a home builder. Uh, I won't say who it is, but it was up in New England. They went bankrupt because it was during the recession. And I spent all this work to do the, the title sponsor. We were managing, they were paying us to do the tournament. They left town. And then I felt committed that we had to come forth. So we've decided we would take over the tournament and be the title sponsor. And we did that in 2008. Um, and we had maybe about 20 um, companies and we did it at Cedarwood uh, Country Club. And then we you know, go to all of my clients and partners and say, hey, you wanna help sponsor this? And I, I tell you, trying to solicit for a nonprofit it's 10 times harder than it is for me soliciting my services at the marketing. That was an eye opener. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, we can sell $500 whole signs. And it was like teams for a thousand bucks and everyone. I was like, really? And it was weird. So kind of had to learn that, how to, that mindset and how to, but that was the hardest thing I, I ever had to sell. I, that was an eye opener. So we did that. I got another title sponsor with Shoemaker. And then we went with um, uh, Schaefer Systems here. One of my clients, they were a title sponsor for quite a few years. So we just got kind of going and our whole, office from day one after the tournament is kind of all our, we do all the marketing, we'll do all the social, we'll actually plan hundred percent of it. Um, it's been nice. So that's kind of our give back and the whole office was there. We had it on September 19th, our 15th annual um, this past uh, month, but we, we did it and then it had to be a 501c3. And then we kind of went through that. And then, you know, it's, it's been a nice little um, kind of side, you know, we do want to take it to another level. Um, after doing the 501c3 and looked at the tax stuff and all that, I, you know, I support it still with a full-time employee and our design stuff, but I would love to get it to a point where 
it's self-sufficient and it could have its own executive director and things like that. And then we help a lot of the smaller uh, companies. So 60% goes to now the Toys for Tots. The other 40 now goes to like Pioneer Springs School, um, a little bit of Classroom Central. Uh, we're helping the local football team that um, they need some support. We just helped them buy some equipment. So we're trying to do it on all focus towards kids, but we're trying to do, there's so many smaller foundations here in Charlotte that need help. So we kind of divvy up the other 40% and help them, you know, but you know, it's usually thousand to $2,000 each, but all those little tidbits kind of help, you know? Yeah. And then I kind of let the group decide who they want to help. So it's been, it's been neat, you know? So that's great. You said right off the bat, Charlotte's a philanthropic city, which, which it very much is. But why did you start this, right? Why were you getting so involved in the nonprofits and to the point where a third of your billables were being donated to nonprofits? What, what's the reason you specifically yeah. were having that be such a crucial part of, of what you were doing in your business? Well, I mean, I was always thought, you know, I was, you know, started with the Boy Scouts as an Eagle Scout. We were always, I mean, I was always taught to give back. And then, you know, my company was actually, you know, a resource to be able to give back, even though I almost ran it to the ground doing all the free stuff. But, and I, you know, there was a big need. I was totally shocked that a lot of these nonprofits didn't get a lot of the marketing help and still they need a lot of marketing help. You know, I mean, I was on the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Foundation for almost 10 years and helped them do their luncheon. You know, and the last luncheon did very well, you know, I made $1.3 million. And I finally rolled off the, the, um, the board, but you just notice there's a big need for a lot of these. And, you know, Gary, as you know, it's even with a lot of these organizations, marketing is usually the last thing. And a lot of marketing companies, yeah, they're, they're pretty thin and they don't give back. I was shocked. I mean, I think my size of my agency in the 90s, 2000, one year we almost gave, it was almost to like $900,000 and nonprofit gave give back. And that's when my CPA said, whoa, you gotta, you gotta stop it. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was an eye opener. I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. So now we, you know, we do on average right now about 300,000. Uh, of course, our company's bigger, but it was just an eye opener. You know, I need a brochure. Can you help us with this? And, I, and, and early on, I couldn't say no. That was another thing I finally have learned to say. It's only been like probably in the last nine years to five years specifically is I've learned to say no. And I couldn't say no in those days. And I think everyone started knowing about that. So this is not Jack. He'll always say yes. So, so. <laughs> but, you know, I, I want to make sure it's a good fit. I'm trying to refer more maybe to some of the smaller designers and agencies because there's a lot of small agencies that can give back. Um, and I don't think a lot of them are, are even asked or they're not, they don't approach, you know, some of these um, companies that need help. Like, I'm, you know, the, I'm on the Boy Scout Foundation. That's the last one. I'm on the board. Um, still help a little bit with UNC Charlotte. Um, but we're kind of limited. I'm on the St. Jude's Advisory Council, but I'm trying to limit it now to like two or three because it's hard, you know, yeah. and you really can spend so much time. You know, I was a scoutmaster for 10 years. That was like more time I've ever spent uh, as a second job, you know, doing that. That was, but it was a great experience, you know, able to give back to the kids. And uh, my son was in the troop, did the, the national, we did the, the national jamboree that was at uh, Bechtel Reserve in 2013. I was a scoutmaster of A203. That was a lifetime experience. It was two, two weeks up there with 40,000 kids and over 10,000 uh, volunteer adults. The logistics on that were phenomenal, but um, I checked that box. I don't know if I could ever do that again. So <laughs> it rained every night when we were there. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I test your resolve. 
Yeah, we love outdoors. I mean, I love hiking and outdoors. I got kind of addicted to the camping and we do high adventure trips. Um, I started with about 60 boys and we were down about 45, 50. And we had a trip once a month. We were doing 27 miles up the Appalachian. We did uh, White Top. I mean, we did a lot. Damascus. I mean, we got some stories and we, we did a lot of backpacking. But. Did that kind of lead you into Norlandis? You know, tell us a little bit about that too. Well, that one was actually started during COVID, if you can believe it. It was actually, it was a company called Nordique and this guy Roop and Den they actually found us online. They were um, Denmark, it was in Finland. It was weird. And then we started doing bi-weekly and their government was trying to do a partnership with someone over here with all the um, travel agencies. So did the branding, did a nice website and we actually helped them do some marketing here, but because the COVID was so, you know, kept getting prolonged. And then, you know, Finland had one of the higher, I think for a long time, a year after. So that one got kind of pushed. We are investigating. So actually Norlandis is now hundred percent of the U.S. kind of division of that. And Nordique is still part of the European um, part of it, but it's something actually we started, it took about two years. It's kind of in pause right now. Um, and we're actually reinvestigating how we can kind of, um, kind of bring it back to life. Um, and then, you know, and then I got to decide too how much you want to get stretched in is the same thing. It's like, you only can focus so much time and, and we're at a growth yeah. here at our company. Um, you know, we got two or three decent pitches. We just picked up two really, really nice clients that are, you know, public companies. We feel like that's a, it's a good win for us. And I'm really trying to stay more focused on what we need because if I, you know, get a little spread thin and then you really can't stay focused and, you know, I have to kind of sometimes pull some things back in, you know, and make sure we can do that. Enjoy yeah. life a little more too. So. Yeah. If you get spread too thin, then nothing gets the attention it needs. Right. Right. So I'm getting better at that. So I kind of put that Norlandis on hold a little bit more. So because of that, so sometimes, you know, as you get older, I'll, I'll figure it out by the time I'm 90 and then, you know, I'll be done. <laughs> That's how it works. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> figured out, and it's we're game. still learning, man. <laughs> it's game over after you figured 100 out. You're like, great, yeah, game over. You're done. <laughs> yeah. You gotta write a book. I did have a book. I did write actually when I was going through my uh, 2014. My uh, uh, coach was David Zerfoss with Vistage. He's yeah. a yeah. great mentor, and um, my life was you know took a turn in 2013. I just joined Vistage. And I'm still with David today. And he has been probably one of my more um, big, I mean, he has been a huge influence on me as a, almost more of a personal coach. Um, you know, and he did help my uh, company almost double in size and gave me a whole new outlook where David, um, there's, I love his mindset as like, you know, you know, growth minded and, and, you know, why, you know, why 10 million? Why not a hundred million? Why not a billion? So he, he gives you that mindset that you got to kind of program your brain to kind of go really out there. Um, and it kind of gives you an open mind on that because you kind of limit yourself mentally. It's funny how you keep saying 5 million. It's not a lot, but you're like, why do you do 10 million? Why are you doing these incremental steps? Why can't you just take a big jump? And you have to really, you say, I don't know. You get scary and you got to look at all the logistics, but he really kind of gives you a whole different mindset which has been good so yes. and he had me write a book so i wrote a book on the genius which was an acronym he helped me kind of build that um and that was kind of our um you know the genius core values and i, I wrote the book it took me three and a half years it's 46 pages it's nothing it's a it's an easy quick read but i tell you that was the hardest um 
to do checkbox, I had to do was like, you write a book. I'm like, okay. And then I, it took me a long time to do it. But um, and I give it away. It's uh, the 10 quick steps of genius marketing. And um, it's good. It has a couple of stories in it. I actually hand the book out to everyone I meet and I sign it. And uh, I'm much on a second revision of it now with uh, the BRK. But um, he was very, uh, that was, and it does, he's right. You go into a meeting and you hand someone a book and he's right. Your IQ automatically goes up 10 points. It doesn't matter how good the book is. <laughs> so, yep. Well, so, and he, and he does that himself too, right? He wrote stress is a choice yep. and <laughs> same thing. Everybody he meets, you get a copy of it. There's a little note inside of it. Yeah. Makes, makes sense. So Dave Zerfoss for anyone listening to this who doesn't know stress is a choice there's his book yep he's also he's the visage chair um for your vistage group as well as the one that adam boatsman has been going to too and i know he has made a huge difference um tell the listeners jack a little bit about dave zerfoss because <laughs> what he did before like the company size before he took it and where, where he took it to. Oh yeah. I think when he was the CEO of Husqvarna, he, um, same thing, did a whole different mindset. I think they were almost brought it to a half a billion from, you know, 150, 200,000, or, I mean, I know he almost tripled or quadrupled it. Uh, and he did it in such a short time period, but, um, amazing story. Um, very, you know, you know, Dave is approachable, you know, you can talk to him and he doesn't have a huge ego and he's just got great ideas and he really does help with the culture. You know, when he challenges everything and not only does he challenge um, the company, but he challenged each individual person, leader, whether it was a manager, like, you know, even a sales guy's like, well, why'd you do that? He actually, he would actually ask great questions and he wasn't, you know, trying to bully them or try to be aggressive, but he would ask the questions, made them think, they would actually give him a a solution that, you know, he made them accountable to do it. I mean, it's just, it is amazing when you just kind of ask that question back to that person, let them think about it. They'll come up with a solution nine times out of 10. And then he just says, be actionable and do it. And he really, you know, transformed a lot of that. I know a lot of what they're doing today is because of what he did uh, in those days. And um, and he carries it over to our Vista. So he, he's another guy that's very passionate what he likes and what he's doing for a living. I mean, I get up every morning and love what I do, but you know, when I have my one-on-ones with him, you know, during the, the month, you have about one, one, you know, we have lunch. We usually try to meet, you know, face-to-face, -face, but you can just tell that he's just, you know, having a great time helping all these CEOs and, and all these different companies and all these different, you know, problems and solutions he's trying to help. And, you know, he, he just, uh, I can definitely tell he's, uh, he's excited. So, <laughs> so a, a lifetime ago, for me anyway. So probably like 10 years ago, right after I sold my first business, moved down here, I did personal training on the side just to make money. And I was training David. That's how I met him. Really? So, no kidding. Yeah. Completely different world than what I'm doing now. But yeah, just random how, how stuff like that happens. Yeah, he's a good, um, I actually tried a CEO 90 with uh, Michael Bork. Uh, he came down here from Chicago, works for Insperity. So mm -hmm. yeah. I had a CEO 90. It was funny. He ended up moving across the street for me. And then he called me like three weeks later. And then we met in the office. I, was like, I think you're my neighbor. And so we actually, I partnered with him. He wanted me to do the marketing on it. So literally a nine minute session. It's, you have a different, you know, someone's in um, the space of marketing. One's a CPA, one's an attorney. 
you know, ones in construction. So you had no conflict of businesses. Yep. And we did it at Ballantine Country Club as a 90 minute breakfast. And we did the materials, did the branding. We did it for three years. And we actually had David Zerfoss as um, one of the moderators. And it was neat because it was a breakfast from like seven to 8.30. And it was a networking event. Everyone had to bring two or three people. He only had one yearly kind of membership versus the monthly like Vistage. And we were really trying to make this model work. And it, it, it worked pretty nicely. Actually, um, um, a couple of people were in it that um, are on the Vistage group now. And we would feed in maybe one or two people in Vistage, but then after that we were running it and it just became too much of a, another distraction that we closed it down. And I said, okay, Dave, I'm gonna join Vistage. So, but uh, the CO90 was a great, I think it was a great concept, but um, same thing, you gotta decide what you wanna do. I, I told Michael, we need to do this full time or are we gonna quit our daytime jobs or we're just gonna have to decide to move on. Yeah. So I became actually my own, it's funny, you know, we, I, you know, tell other companies not to do it on the side. It's hard. You know, we were trying to do it. It did have a tie-in because I love working with the CEOs. Um, and, you know, we were trying to get a little about not trying to pay the uh, the monthly fee with Vistage. That was a little to do with it too. <laughs> so <laughs> they, have a, they have a great model. It's really hard to beat. I mean, um, with the advisory board and with the, the model they have and um, helping other companies in the afternoon, you know, and we have great speakers that kind of come in. Uh, but I, although I got a book list to read, that's like, you know, I got nine books left. I got to read. It gets a little overwhelming sometimes uh, because you're in that crash yeah. course of that one day, once a month, it, it's hard. It gets a little overwhelming, you know, but, but it does take you away from your office for about a full day. You try to disconnect from your office day-to-day -day concerns and the people and you're around really, really smart people. And um, we've built a lot of good trusted relationships in my group. You know, it's been great. I've been in two different ones with him. So the first five years I did one and the new one I'm in now. So it's been nice. You build really, really nice relationships, you know, especially me not having any partners. That's yeah. the hardest thing I think about being an entrepreneur. I don't have any partners. I don't have any investors, some kind of a lone wolf, but I, it's good in some ways because you have a lot of friends that, you know, the partners break up and it gets ugly. It's worse than a divorce, but sometimes I need that, you know, yeah. can I bounce something off someone, um, you know, and I've luckily got some good, you know, good business partners that I can do that with. And, you know, Zerfus is one of them, and even other CEOs. But I think that's the hardest thing is that when it comes down to it, I have to make the final decision. And I make, you know, and I have to literally, I, the consequences are on 100% on my shoulders, you know. And I sometimes wish, oh, I wish I had a partner that, that really, really was engaged as much as I was. But I know that's been, every time I think I want to do it, a friend of mine breaks up with his partner. So that changes my, <laughs> seriously, right when I'm ready to have a partner or, or go work for someone else. I mean, I've had multiple you know, CMOs, I just got offered another one and a big, I was like, I just can't see me going to work for someone else after 30, you know, one years. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone says you're crazy, but I said, well, I don't have to worry about all the headaches. And you know, there's a lot of things you got to deal with day to day between, you know, your employee yeah. payroll and HR and just, you know, managing just a lot of, um, just a lot of drama and, you know, just a lot of stuff. And, I, but I like it. I mean, I, I don't, I like the busyness and I like kind of, you know, I'm, I don't know what am I doing when I'm retired because I'm going to probably go bored, but I love the challenges. I don't look at it negatively. I just look at it as a challenge and we try to resolve it and just move on. So um, yeah. luckily I still have the enthusiasm to do it, but I know it's going to start, you know, I got to think about um, my end game later is maybe it's consulting. I do want to travel more and, you know, I'm going to go to Italy next week for the first time. Um, so it's, you know, I've decided finally I got to, you got to sometimes just say, there's never a right time. I said, we're going, we're leaving Monday, we're going. 
That's right. Coming back. So if I don't see what the podcast looks like, you guys can decide what it looks like. I, we, I may just, you know, disappear. <laughs> That's fun. One uh, of the, it, go for it. Go ahead. go ahead. I was going to say one of the things that we've seen, the themes throughout this podcast is successful entrepreneurs, they prioritize their health. Uh, in some way, they surround themselves with other people that they can bounce ideas off of. They've had either mentors or leaders that have done things that they can learn from. They're constantly growing. And you've gone, you've checked the box in, in all of those things, right? We've hit on all of them without us really bringing any of it up. It's just baked right into your DNA of these are the yeah. things that are most important. It's just interesting to go through that conversation, Jack, of how many things you've offered of the way that you live your life and go through business. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, like I said, it's been a learning experience. I'll tell you that. Cause I, I don't care if you're not, you know, being an entrepreneur, you know, you have to have the drive, you have to have the commitment and you have to have the passion. Um, I think that's super important. If you don't have it, if you're just doing it for, to make money or you're doing it for a certain reason, uh, you know, um, I've got so many friends that can't get up in the morning. They go, I hate my job. And, I'm just blown away because I've never experienced hating my job. Granted, I've had difficulty getting up saying, oh, this is going to be a challenging day or, you know, I have to, you know, I have to deal with this concern that I know we can resolve, but, you know, you got to kind of look at it with a different mindset. But um, yeah, like I said, it's hard. You read all these different books and everyone's got these different experiences and I'm trying to get a little more ingrained on, you know, um, the future is faster than you think. It's amazing all these books and these experiences, but everyone's is different, you know? Um, I don't think I found anyone that was closer to what I was uh, doing. Um, I did read one book. A friend of mine actually was the dad of one of my Eagle Scouts when I was trying to go in. It was like 45 going through my transformation. I read the book Halftime. And oh, yeah. that one spoke probably really kind of weird. That one was almost a mirror of exactly where I was in my life with what that book was. It was exactly. It was kind of weird. It's kind of freaky. Wow. And I read that. And that was really, really, that was a kind of a, a change spiritually for me to pick, you know, you got to pick one thing on the box and just do it. And I did that. And then I had, you know, and I had another friend that was on the creative side and, you know, he said, you got to read Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. So of course you get bombarded by all these things, but The Power of Now showed me how to focus on what was important now and just deal with it because you can't control what happened in the past. It's funny because when you're going through life changes and, and really, you know, some life changing experiences, you always go back to the past. And even David Zerkos has helped me like, you know what, that's great. The stories are good. Cause I do have a lot of stories, but really you're trying to make the new stories now. And really you only can really control what's going on exactly right now. And it really, really helped me stay focused and not kind of, you know, you can get depressed. You can start getting overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of going on. And I think that the power now is really in the future. You know, it's going to be what it's going to be, but you really don't know what's going to happen and you can't really worry about it. You just try to maybe do what you can do now to hopefully have a better future, you know, modeled as you move forward. But, um, and it's hard trying to, you know, think about today, with, especially with the internet and you got, you know, the audible and you're listening stuff. I listed in the car when I come in, it's just a lot of information coming at you. Um, so I need to get a super computer chip, I think, in my brain, because I know you only can remember like 15 or 20%. It's overwhelming too. Yeah. So. so Jack, this has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, we will send people to 
connect with you on LinkedIn. We'll send people to the, the BRK website, which is brkmarketing.com. We'll put those in the show notes. Any final thoughts that you want before we sign off or anywhere else you want people to go? Hopefully you got a couple of good little tidbits somewhere. So, Oh yeah, there's good stuff here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. Thanks for you guys' time. I appreciate it. It's always nice to kind of talk to you guys and, and kind of reminisce on some of the startups and all that. It goes so fast. I mean, I can't believe I've done it for 30 years. I feel like I've done it like five, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It does fly by really, really fast. So I know everyone says that in life and everything. So, but learn and enjoy, you know, I'm trying to learn to enjoy the moment and learn to enjoy um, the experiences I am having, you know, day to day, because, you know, you don't know how many days you have, and I'm really trying to be more present. And that's one thing I'm really trying to do personally in my life. And it does make you actually happier. And it does keep you kind of focused on what's important with the kids, your family and your business and employees and clients. So I've really kind of taken that into, uh, I'm practicing that pretty, pretty faithfully in the last six months. It's made a big difference. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, guys. It's been a fun uh, episode with you. Okay, appreciate it. Look forward to seeing the end result. <laughs>